The Theonauts, episode 44. The one where we sneak into the Gideon's office and leave them Bibles. The Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's Word. Hello, all you theotextual critics out there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm David Gaddy. And I'm Riley Neal, substitute Theonauts. Yes, and we are the Theonauts. So yes, Riley Neal is in the studio today. He will be Jeremiah for a day. Oh, this is going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, Jeremiah is out of town. I believe he's visiting family, right? Yeah, he is. So he he lost out. So uh, he's been replaced. (laughs) Yeah, we get to make fun of him while he's gone, right? Yes. So Riley is in from college right now on spring break, right? Yes. And so uh, he is going to be substituting today because he's learned all this good theological stuff at college. Oh, definitely. Well, (laughs) you could say it that way. (laughs) So, yeah, we were going to actually have uh, Jeremiah Skype in like as a guest. And uh, I don't know what happened to that. Just just like usual, he's not answering his (laughs) phone. Not answering his text. It's like he's like an old man or something. It's like, oh, yeah, my phone's in my car. I don't actually carry it with me. (laughs) Uh, so anyway, so how is college, Riley? Um, it's really exciting. Uh, you know, for me, coming from a small town, it's been a totally um, radical change going to somewhere like Baylor with 15,000 students, but I like it. Um, meet some great people, learn some great things. Uh, you really get to decide who you're going to be, I guess, for the rest of your life. Right, so. right. Or at least who you think you're going to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, so what's your, what's your major of study? I'm studying math and religion, and those are really hard to mesh together. So I'm doing a program called University Scholars that basically takes all my, you know, uh, basics requirements and tosses them out the window. So oh, okay. I'm free to take um, a lot of whatever I want. So I wow, can that's cool. Get all the classes in for mathematics and religion, so I can, you know, hopefully teach math at the high school level and do some ministry stuff. Oh, sweet. So yeah, that actually is kind of a cool mix because I mean, I I kind of like mathematics. It's analytical. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to me, good Bible study is analytical. I mean, you want to, to, uh, it's not all as simple, uh, simple math in, in the Bible. It's, you know, <laughs> some complex yeah. stuff going on in there. I agree. And I'm, I'm taking one really cool course this semester. It's a uh, logic uh-huh. and I've never seen anything take my two disciplines, math and religion and tie those together so well as logic does, because it's going to say, Let's take some arguments. Lots of them are arguments about, you know, the existence of God or other important like religious type topics. Take those arguments that are in English, translate them into a mathematical language and prove that they're valid or invalid. Oh, awesome. Mathematically. So yeah, that sounds like it's a lot of fun. Like fun. So how does the uh, school, um, how are they handling the theology courses? I mean, are, are they very, are they ultra liberal or are they ultra conservative somewhere in between? Um, last semester, I probably would have told you 
fairly liberal. Yeah. But I think it depends also on your professor a lot. Um, the department of the department itself, I would say, is very Christian, but not extremely Baptist. Mm-hmm. So um, that can be good in a lot of ways. You get to know people from different denominations and see their perspectives. And uh, but I would say there's there's definitely a lot of what I would say liberal Protestantism there too. So, gotcha. Okay. Um, well, cool. You're not you're not uh, like ready to throw the book at your professors or anything. Like <laughs> not quite. <laughs> So, well, cool. I wish you the best of luck in your pursuits. I, uh, I wish that I had uh, your, um, I guess, goals whenever I was your age. Because <laughs> I could have seen, uh, like, when I went, I went to school, it was all science and it was all uh, computer. And I mean, it was like, yeah, I was a Christian, but that was... Sundays. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and of course my, my focus has changed since then. Uh, but yeah, it would be really fun to go through, uh, some of those disciplines that I went through, but with a stronger, um, need to, to, to minister and, mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. So that is yeah. one thing that's really cool about Baylor is, um, even outside of the religion department, you have professors with, um, really strong faith and you mm-hmm. have also, a lot of a lot of community service and ministering to the poor neighborhoods in Waco going on, which oh. is one of my favorite things about uh, yeah, the university. That's, that's awesome. All right. So I asked Riley if uh, he wanted to take part in the normal things that we do here on the Theonauts, and he didn't have any news for us, but <laughs> uh, we're going to do a little trivia. So we, we won't mess up uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah and I's game because we're competing right now. Oh, okay. And I'm winning, by the way. Uh, so we'll just do a couple of questions apiece and see how it turns out. So, Theo Trivia. All right. So how this works is those... See those little abbreviations there? Gotcha. Each one of them is a category, and uh, we'll just pick one at random and uh, ask the questions and see what we get. So um, since you're the guest, I'm going to let you go first. Okay. So, okay, now here's what the categories are. Old Testament, that's what OT is. Gotcha. History and geography. Fun. Uh, Prophecy. Names. Letters, numbers, and sequences, New Testament, and words. Okay. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with Old Testament for this first one. Okay, Old Testament. Uh, oh, man, come on. No, I ain't going to ask you one more <laughs> baby question. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> uh, and some of these I've, we've already done with... Uh, Jeremiah. So, I keep seeing the answers instead of the questions. Okay, you ready? Let's do it. Here we go. What lie did the Egyptian midwives tell the king to explain why they didn't kill the Israelites' baby boys upon delivery? Oh, I think I know this one. It's a. Uh, if I remember right, the Hebrew women are—they're vigorous and they give birth too quickly for them to kill the babies. Oh wow! 
Yeah, you almost quoted that word for word. <laughs> I probably read it last semester. <laughs> That's in Exodus uh, 1, 19. And the answer is that the Hebrew women were vigorous and gave birth before they arrived. Awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with... Um, Let's go with New Testament. New Testament. Ooh, this is, this might be a tough one. You can pick and choose right. if you want. Okay, go ahead. What was the name of the man whose ear was cut off in Gethsemane? I didn't reset that thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the name of the man whose ear was lobbed off. Um, oh, man... It's on the tip of my tongue. I, does it start with an O? I keep thinking Onesimus, but that's the guy that uh, no, that Philemon wrote about. It starts with an M, actually. Oh, man. No, nah, I'm out. What is it? Malchus. Malchus. Okay, well, uh, to me. Okay. Next one. What do you want? Um... Let's try New Testament. New Testament. Okay, well, this will be good, or easy one. To whom did Jesus say, Know ye not that I must be about my Father's business? Hmm. (laughs) You know, there there are two main choices in my mind right now. Um, I guess I'm going to go with the disciples, although the Pharisees are there too in my head for some reason. But I'm going to say disciples. Um, oh, no. Joseph and Mary, his, oh. his parents. Oh, is that when he was, that was, uh, he was 12 years old in the temple? Yes, yes, okay, yes, gotcha. Yes. Okay, well, let's see if I can play catch up here. Uh, let's go with history and geography. For some reason, right. I, I like that one. History and geography. Yeah. Here we go. Which church did Paul suggest should excommunicate a fornicator of his father's wife? Oh, I mean, I had that one last week. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. My bad. My that was bad. Let's, try, let's try another one. Well, I need to get a new stack probably. So. Yeah. Okay, let's go. History, okay. and geography. History and geography. Let's try this one. Okay. Who succeeded Aaron as the high priest of the Israelites? Like it's right there. <laughs> um, man, I can't remember it. I'm gonna have to take. What we got? It's Eleazar. Eleazar, okay. yes. Okay, so, all right, was that two? That was for two. each of us. Yeah. Okay. Well, you totally whipped me on that one. Um. Okay, I need to totally recycle those cards because we we're, <laughs> we're I think we about done them all. Okay, uh, you came up with the topic kind of through Jeremiah. Jeremiah mm-hmm. said, uh, "Hey, uh, uh, let Riley host the show, and then y'all can talk about this." So, <laughs> <laughs> so what is it we're going to talk about? We are going to talk about contested authorship of biblical books today. Okay, so a little bit of textual criticism, exactly. Um, so. 
the, the idea here is, did the people that we think wrote, write these books, write them? <laughs> exactly. <right>? So, <laughs> and I, I had, I dealt with this a lot last semester. Really? Yeah. Um, definitely got some exposure to both sides of the arguments. Yeah. Um, some from class, some from my own research, I would say, trying to be fair-minded. So, Gotcha. Uh, well, let me ask this. In this discussion, at least in my study of it, I don't see anything that, can, that contests the inerrancy of Scripture, right? Do you, is that your kind of findings on this? Um, <laughs> I, I would agree. But I would say um, a lot of your views on... Uh, authorship is going to be based on your view on inerrancy. Because for me, um, uh, the question becomes, what do we believe is inspired and authoritative? And right. I don't think a lot of people have a problem with saying tradition is inspired and authoritative. I, I, I think most evangelicals, though, are going to say the Bible is inspired right. and authoritative. And so when uh, that's your mindset, then evidence in the text itself is going to weigh really heavily and right, maybe right. Um, other, you know, stylistic differences, things like that might might not weigh quite as much. But for somebody who doesn't believe in inerrancy, um, gotcha. the arguments for traditional authorship, they, they might still be persuasive, but they're not going to be as persuasive. Gotcha. Well, um, and that's that's true with with almost anything in that um, the the Bible is like the source of. Uh, like, okay, well, it's, it's part of the five solas of the Reformation, right? Yeah. So by Scripture alone. Um, so if I am to believe in Christ um, alone, by Scripture alone, um, then if we lose some of that uh, faith that we have in the Scripture, we start to lose faith in what the Scripture teaches. Exactly. So mm -hmm. what do we have outside of the Scripture to base our faith on besides personal experiences, which is not well, it, always, it becomes very thing. subjective. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and so I guess what I'm getting at is in my study of this, I didn't see anything that would take me away from that. Uh, however, I think you're exactly right. I did go into it with a bias. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. But, but I, I, but I approached this stuff. Um, you know, textual criticism has been one of my pet studies, you know, going way back. Uh, not necessarily authorship, but um, <clears throat> but other things as well. Um, one of the big things that that uh, I have found, and we talked about on the Theonauts before, is the supernatural aspects of the writing of the Bible. Yeah. And with that in mind, it makes it really hard for me to, like if the scripture says something and I see the supernatural side of that, of of the passage from the outside looking in, uh -huh. then it makes it really hard for me to doubt what's being said on the inside of it. Uh, so if I, if I do see like an authorship issue and um, maybe a critic is saying, uh, Paul didn't write this, even though his name is right there in the first verse, mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a really hard time with that, you know, because, yeah. because it, now if it, if it's not ascribed to him, then Yeah. I don't struggle with it as much, mm -hmm. but whenever it's actually there, it makes it kind of hard for me to say, well, if I'm not going to believe that the guy is saying who he, who he was, then how can I believe anything else in the letter? You know what I mean? Yeah. And you bring up a good point. Um, when you mentioned supernatural, <laughs> that made me think of something else. If you start also with the mindset of a supernatural 
you know, type activity or supernatural inspiration or miracles are impossible, that's going to lead you to one type of view about the scriptures. Cause then, you know, uh, predictive prophecy becomes mm-hmm. impossible and, uh, other things like that, like gospels being harmonious without a common source becomes impossible. Um, so yeah, your view on that is going to affect your view on authorship. And, uh, also, like you said, sometimes, uh, because books are anonymous, mm-hmm. it's going to allow us to be have a little bit more freedom in our interpretation of authorship, where we're not bound to one author as as tightly as we're going to be in some books where the author is explicitly stated. And so Correct. it gets a little messier there because inspiration and inerrancy and authorship get tied closer together. Yeah. So, yeah. so. we'll see that in different books that we're going to talk about. Okay, so where do you want to start us out? Um, I figure we might as well start um, in the beginning and uh, take a look at the Pentateuch. <laughs> okay, and, uh, so the, uh, the Pentateuch in the Greek, Torah in the Hebrew. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> so the first five books of our Bible for you yes. laypersons. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, uh, so who is traditionally, who is the Pentateuch ascribed to? It would be Moses. Yes. And uh, so, you know, traditionally, Moses, this, is, this has been... Uh, a pretty solid belief for probably the better part of 2000 years. Right. But then, uh, you know, you have the enlightenment and, um, textual criticism starting to grow, especially around 300 years ago. And, uh, you have, um, the development of, uh, this theory that's going to be called the documentary hypothesis or J E D P theory. Okay. If you've heard of that before. And, uh, just so we got some, uh, some, <laughs> references here i'm i'm using two resources today i'm using my new oxford annotated bible um i was required to own this for classes last year uh when i put this bible on my library i want to put a big stamp on the front that says proceed with caution or or something (laughs) like that because uh this this bible is going to represent though for us it's going to be useful because it's going to represent uh the consensus of uh critical scholarship, you know, secular academia, right? Um, what their views are. What their are. take on it is. And uh, it's going to give us a resource <laughs> to understand those people who are contesting authorship. So anyway, um, what this theory basically says is that um, Moses is not the author of the Pentateuch or at best only authors of, the author of tiny pieces of it or maybe the author of some traditions that led to it. Um, the JEDP or documentary hypothesis says there are four different sources that have been basically redacted or compiled um, into the five books that we know today. And those books are going to be the Yahwistic source, the Eloistic source, the Deuteronomistic source, and the Priestly source. And uh, scholars um, will distinguish between different ones by what names they use for God and what their focuses are and... Uh, Essentially, they think it's kind of like a cut and paste where someone valued all these four different sources and didn't want to just pick one, so they meshed them up together into one large um, conglomerate. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, Well, the, now, which one of those would represent the classical uh, Jew, like the, the Hebrew? Because, you know, in the, in the Jewish tradition, the Torah which is what we're talking about, is the most sacred book. So, so and, um, and most of the uh, classic Judaism would ascribe it to Moses. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, 
like which one of these views do the scholars see as the Jewish Bible, like the Tanakh? That's what, you know, the Jews have the have three uh, Bibles that they use, the Torah, the Nevi'im, mm-hmm. and the Kiruvim. And uh, the Torah obviously being the most sacred. If a, a Sefer Torah cannot even be touched by human hands, that's, mm-hmm. that's how sacred they see it. You know, you actually bring up a good point in that. And um, this is one of the things that I don't understand because... Um, most of the scholars think that this stuff was getting compiled and redacted into its, you know, current five book form around uh, the time of the exile. And their argument goes something like, okay. you know, they've been taken away from their land. They've been taken away from the temple. They need to uh, fix their national and religious identity. And so that's what they believe leads to the okay. compilation and kind of the formation of the Hebrew canon. Okay, so and this so, would tie into... Um in the, about 900 AD or so, we had the Masoretes, the Maser, the, mm-hmm. the Masoretes, which uh, they gathered at um, Je- uh, Jezeret or Galilee at Tiberias with the single goal of we're losing our heritage, we're losing the spoken, because uh, a lot of the Torah, and uh, Torah mainly, but the rest of all the Tanakh, they were losing part of it because of the changes in Hebrew language, because remember the Hebrew language kind of went the way of the dinosaur for during the time of Jesus on. Yeah. Uh, and it's only, you know, came back as they came back into the land. Uh-huh. Um, so the Hebrew language was being lost and the written form of the, of, of these works did not contain any vowels. Mm-hmm. The, the ancient Hebrew uh, text relies on it being spoken. It relies on it being passed down from one to the other. Yeah. And their concern was, uh, we're going to lose the meaning of the text because we're not speaking this anymore. So we need to go to rabbis and uh, uh, scholars of our day and have them uh, give us the linguistics of it. And we'll Mm -hmm. notate that with dots and crowns and all this sort of thing. They added to the Hebrew language Mm -hmm. To, to designate what vowels you use. Yeah, and preserve the and, exact pronunciation. Right, and, and not only that, but there was also some things that were marginal in the original text, and they had to determine, is this scripture or is this notation? Um, I talked to a, um, to a rabbi one time about all this, had an interview with him, and uh, it was very fascinating uh, their understanding of how you read the Bible and understand it is completely different than ours. I mean, we look at it in terms of scholastics. You know, I mean, we, we mm-hmm. look at it and we study it. We go to all these resources and we, and they do that to some degree, but it's a little bit different. They see the rabbis who have gone before them as inspired as well. So, oh, okay. so like you might have, like if you open up a, um, uh, like a rabbinical, um, uh, Torah, like a study Torah, you'll see like a, maybe a, a 12 by 14 inch book. I mean, huge mm-hmm. book. And it, and the actual text of the Torah will be four by four in the middle of the page. And then you've got the gloss. Right. And then you've got all of this, uh, you know, as you start, there's writings around it from ancient rabbis. Mm-hmm. And then around that, more modern rabbis. And so it works its way out. And so you can see what all the thoughts of this passage have been over years. And that's how they, they see it all as inspired. Okay. So, yeah. So um, 
so anyway, not to completely derail you, I'm just trying to see how mm-hmm. this the scholars of, of of these of this theory how they how they get history into there. How mm-hmm. do they blend it into? To I mean, are they just looking at it in terms of the Old Testament, or are they looking at it in terms of the ancient versions of the text? Okay, so I, <laughs> okay, I, I'm not sure if I perfectly understand what you're asking though. Yeah. Um, okay, you remind just a second ago. You reminded me of something, and uh, I was getting at this. You know, uh, one thing that I don't think this theory does a good job accounting for for me is how much the um, like the Pharisees and the Jews of that day come to revere the Torah right. so high above everything else because when you put the formation of it in exile, then that's after some of the prophets. It's probably after some of the histories. And it's even after um, a lot of historical mentions you have like in Joshua and the kings of a book of the law. And so I wonder how does this, you know, even though it's formed so late, how does it become revered so highly? Right. So that's one of the right. hesitations I have about that hypothesis. Gotcha. Um, okay. We'll continue on there. Okay. Um, let's see. <laughs> let's see where I am. Um, a lot of the um, distinction between uh, the different sources. Um, is found in Genesis one and two, actually. Okay. And I think I think uh, in my Christian scriptures last last semester, my Christian scriptures class last semester, we had uh, by the first test we had three tests. By the first test we had covered like Genesis one and two and three, and then like you know the next test was like Genesis four through the end of the Old Testament or something. So right. we spent a lot of time. So uh, I don't know. Did you guys talk about the two different uh, creation accounts on uh, any of the creation episodes? Uh, a little bit. That's called the gap theory is the common um, uh, reference, I think, that you were talking about, where um, it's basically saying that Genesis 1 and 1 is a creation. And then verse 2, the and it was without form and void, is should be translated became without form. Oh no, this is a little different thing though. Okay. So this is uh gonna look at Genesis um one one okay. through let's see, Genesis chapter two, verse three as one creation account by one of the um sources in our fourth oh, okay. four source hypothesis. And then it's gonna look at um the creation of man, the creation focused on man in uh two four through uh the rest of chapter two as a different one from a different source. And the um, textbook that we used last semester views these as uh, in conflict with one another. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, well, and there's something at work here that I think some textual critics lose sight of is that mm-hmm. this is Hebrew authorship, uh-huh. which is bound to Hebrew linguistics and Hebrew, uh, Figure, figures of speech and and there's a lot of things that they do in in uh, Hebrew literature that we don't commonly do anymore but like uh, they're real big about telling you something and then retelling it in an expanded exactly. way exactly and that's mm-hmm. that's what I see happening here but I understand where the critics are coming from they're probably saying well they're not using the same vocabulary they're not using the same uh, sentence structure so it's got to be two different authors. Uh, uh-huh. At least that's a lot of what the uh, authorship 
problems in the New Testament, you know, uh, tend to focus on is it's mostly in you're you're saying because he wrote it differently in this place than he did here, it can't be the same guy. Yeah. Is that kind of where they're going? And also some of it's based on order also, but the general idea is in chapter one, you have this structured um, creation, seven days, one thing after another, after another. It's very um, ordered. Mm -hmm. Um, It gets the entire uh, universe created essentially. And uh, there's no like single focus the way um, chapter two, the other supposed account um, has a focus on the creation of mankind. And so what I kind of see it as is kind of, you see this a lot in uh, Hebrew literature, sometimes in the Psalms too, you'll have a broad overview and mm-hmm. then specific, um, a specific statement or like a broad overview and then a zoomed in account. Right, and that's how right. I see this. And um, I yeah. honestly think if you look, I remember reading... It's, it's it, consistent with the rest of the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, even the New Testament. I mean, th- this happens a lot in the way they, um, the way they think, the way they write. Um, so yeah, I'm completely with you on that. Yeah. Just some of the small things like you see in the first one, uh, this is one thing that, that people like to point out. Um, you have living creatures, birds, um, and a wild animal all be being created before humans. But in uh, chapter two, you have, you have this, uh, bizarre statement right here. And it says, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not called it, caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. A stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust. Okay. So what you see, um, what critics look at that and see... A contradiction. Yes. Yeah. In this one, you have this order. In the second one, you have this order. And one of my friends has a pretty reasonable explanation for this. It seems like it doesn't say no plant. It says no plant of the field. And so when I see a plant of the field, when there's no one to till the ground, I'm thinking a crop. Okay. Not any plant at all. Well, that's kind of what so, it um, it says in the last part of that verse. There was no man to cultivate. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I think you're right on. It's it, This is not in reference to growing things as much as it is to... Um, to cultivating things. Yeah, I, I kind of see this as a before agriculture type statement instead of a before plants and animals existed at all. Right. But anyway, that's that's one of your uh, your contradictions. And one one good resource, um, whether you're a young earth or creationist or not, Answers in Genesis. Their website has <laughs> right. lots of good stuff about um, these uh, supposed different creation accounts. Well, yeah. Well, and plus there's a lot of, uh, we talked about this on a previous show also about the framework theory, uh, which is that this is not uh, literal. There's, you know, there's theories Uh that this is not a literal six days or seven days and that it is, uh, that is a framework of literature. Um, And, I think Jeremiah and I were on different pages about that because I tend, I still think it's a literal uh-huh. understanding of the scriptures, but, um, but I mean, he has a right to be wrong. Yeah, so. <laughs> I know. Um, I think I honestly think if you took like a newspaper article, I remember reading an article about uh, one of Baylor's football games, and it started with the final drive and described that, and then it went back and described the whole game um, right, in right. detail, play by play, and would focus on different parts. And I was thinking, if you held this article to the same standard as you held Genesis 1 and 2, you would have to come up with 
oh, this must be by two different authors because of, <laughs> because it jumps around. Right. It's, it's for emphasis yes. and it's for um, thematic effect and it's, it's getting the story in the order it wants to be told. Um, well, and going back to what we were saying earlier about uh, mathematics and scripture mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, um, you, you know, uh, the, the saying that if you torture the numbers long enough, they'll confess to anything. <laughs> it can be applied yeah. to this as well. Uh, because if you take that same type of logic you take to torture the numbers in mathematics, it, if you torture the text long enough, you can get it to say anything yeah. you, you want. My uh, my college pastor made a really good point last week. We're, this ties back into what we were talking about inerrancy earlier. Mm-hmm. He said, when I think of inerrancy, I say, the Bible is inerrant in everything it intends to say. Okay. And so he takes that and says, you know, when Jesus says, you know, the mustard seed is the smallest seed, that doesn't mean that we're held to a scientific standard saying the mustard seed must be the smallest seed in the entire universe <laughs> right. because Jesus said it. Right. That's not what Jesus is intending to say. But at the same time, I when I look at Genesis, I, I do think Genesis is intending to say God created man from the dust, not God created some molecules and let them evolve into man. <laughs> right. I have a hard time yeah. getting that yeah. out of what Genesis says. <clears throat> and and um, that goes right into uh, also the, uh, the point that, that, uh, that you and I were talking about off air a little bit about uh, even if some of this authorship issues, you know, is true, there's, it doesn't take away from um, the message of, of the Bible. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that to me um, is important is if you've got a, a message for the world, um, it's you want to spread it out in, in such a way that it is invulnerable from attack. So if you spread the message out across this, the, across the written word, um, mm-hmm. even if scribes mess it up, even if you lose a passage here or there, or somebody writes one in or, or, or something like that, the overarching message is still there. Uh, it's the only way to destroy it. Like, okay, if I was going to say, cut out the the doctrine of faith out of your Bible. <laughs> it's impossible. You can't do it. And the reason why you can't do it is because the Holy Spirit saw fit to make the doctrine of faith a broad-reaching thing that covers all this. So even if you lost Hebrews verse, chapter 11 and 12, mm-hmm. even if you lost those, you wouldn't lose the understanding of faith. And, you know, same way with love. Cut out the verse on love. Cut out the passage on love. You're not going to lose the doctrine that is there. And so to me, this this plays in exactly with what you're saying, that the Bible is inerrant in what it's trying to convey. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, real quick, before we move on to other, uh, before we move on outside of the Pentateuch, um, do you think that we are, um, we are compelled to believe that Moses wrote every sentence in the first five books of the Bible? Well, Moses would have written about his own death <laughs> because he does die in the Pentateuch. Well, you see some people depend or uh, you know arguing for like a prophetic writing of Moses's <laughs> own death. Right, and it- right. And um, so from that aspect, um, it is not hard for me to believe that Joshua or somebody else took up the mantle and finished the writing. Uh, and things like that. However, one of the things that I tend to lean on is my faith in Jesus Christ, right? (laughs) 
who gives authorship to the Torah. He calls it Moses, Moses. half the time mm-hmm. when he's talking about it. Uh, even whenever he's talking about uh, Lazarus and the rich man, and he's given this little thing, and, and Lazarus says, hey, let me go back and tell my family. So they have Moses, they have Moses and, the and the prophets. He's not saying they have physically Moses they have himself. They J-E-D-P and the prophets. <laughs> right. What he's saying is they have the Torah, and they have the Nevi'im. And if they won't exactly. listen to those things, then... Okay, so he ascribes it to Moses. So if Jesus is ascribing it to Moses, I have to. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I'm at. And there's your there's your New Testament support. I actually wrote down some Old Testament um, support for Mosaic authorship. The first place I wanted to go was uh, Deuteronomy 31.9. And right here... Um, you know, most of the bulk of Deuteronomy is kind of like Moses's farewell address where he leaves the people with the commands. And so in 31, nine, it says he's just finished. Well, this, he's just finished his farewell address and says, then Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi who carried the Ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So Mm. there's like Moses, he gives, he gives them this instruction and then he's like, well, I'm not just going to tell it to them once. They're going to forget this. I'm going to write it down. Right. So for me, at the very least, that's the bulk of Deuteronomy written by Moses. Correct. And then, um, you know, in Leviticus, you can make a similar argument because he's on the top of the mountain with God for mm-hmm. such a wa- long time. He's not just writing down Ten Commandments. Right. It's a, it's a more, um, it's a larger law that he's bringing there. And then uh, in Joshua chapter one, you have some more evidence um let's see in verse 8 it says this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth so at already at this point you have joshua carrying the book of the law which has to be instructions from moses yeah so for example if moses didn't write it who did exactly but at this point it's it's because it's there there. (laughs) by the time of joshua (laughs) right (laughs) and then then the last one uh is um, 2 Kings, uh, chapter 22. And this is one of my favorite stories. Um, Josiah? Of the kings. Yes, yes, Josiah, the eight-year-old king. Yes. And so um, Josiah's dad was was a very wicked man. Yes. And uh, pr- I can't remember, but probably more before him. His grandfather, Manasseh, was the worst. Oh, is he the bad one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was the one killing children. So, yeah. So Josiah... Um, comes to the throne and they find this, the priests as they're renovating the temple, find this book of the law. And the first thing that tells me is that this book of the law was around a long time before Mm -hmm. Josiah and had been neglected. Correct. So it was observed a long time ago back. And this, you know, Josiah's before the exile. So here we see that, you know, the book of the law is not formed during the exile. It's already in existence and actually had been neglected for a decent amount of time before Josiah. Right. And so the high priest uh, comes and says, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So yeah, and he rents his clothes mm-hmm. and they're upset about <laughs> yes. it. They, they understand that it's something very important. Yes. And this is actually one of the things to me that gives the Bible uh, credence in and of itself is the fact that you're sitting here holding a book that this guy found thousands of years ago in the temple that had been neglected, meaning it survived hundreds of years of neglect mm-hmm. and it still exists. And, and not only that, um, not necessarily at the uh, diaspora, but in the intertestinal period, 
when when the Jews were um, were under persecution and they were under the Seleucids and and the um, the what do you call them the Phoenicians and uh-huh. and all those dur- during that time frame uh, the Jews were persecuted and reading the Torah was illegal you couldn't even have one hmm. so it's like how did it survive those four hundred years uh, <laughs> so but it did and so its mere survival to me is part of its credence that it's extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm, it's not exactly. it's not something that that man just, you know, did. Yeah. So so for me where I'm at, I I definitely see that Moses is responsible for the bulk of the Pentateuch. Maybe, yeah. you know, a sentence here or the death account there might be added by Joshua or someone later. I think somewhere it says Moses was a very humble man, more humble mm-hmm. than any other man of the earth. And I, well, I wonder, you know. Well, and this is one thing that was true under the Jewish time frame. I remember the scribes were mm-hmm. very important people, okay? Yeah. So scribes were uh, the rock stars of that day, and they had to, they had a job to do. And uh, if you look at the, the uh, um, what do you call it, the Talmud, it'll give you the oral tradition of what a scribe's job was. It's p- painstaking for them mm-hmm. to, to make sure it was right. And uh, so at the time, Moses may not have even actually put pen to paper. He could have, you know, uh, uh, dictated it. Uh-huh. Okay? That makes it's sense. Still be his authorship. Okay? Uh, and that's nothing unusual, even as we'll see here in the New Testament. In the New Testament, yeah. That there's lots of scribes writing this stuff, even though it's being authored by somebody else. And mm-hmm. um, so that doesn't mean that Moses didn't write it, but a scribe could have been could have been physically pinning it, mm-hmm. and that would make sense if the scribe finished the work after the author died. Uh, so I mean, there's many ways we can understand yeah. it to have to have come to to play. So uh, okay, let's jump into the New Testament. Let's do it. We've got some uh, uh, quite a bit of stuff here to talk about. Um, I've got a little bit on almost every one of the New Testament um, uh, p- p- books, uh, but I've got a couple that uh, I want to focus on. What What do you have um, in the New Testament? Mainly the Pauline? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, I wanted to mainly focus on Pauline, but let's let's uh, let's start at the top. Okay. I think. Okay. Let's do that. So um, let's look at um, the authorship of Matthew. Okay. Okay. Do you um, see, do you see any? From a scholarly standpoint, anything that that tells us that Matthew did not write the book of Matthew. <laughs> um, well, that's a hard question because, uh, well, for one, these books are, um, for the most part, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yes. are anonymous. Other than the fact that we can tell, obviously, Luke and Acts written as a unit or a kind of sequel, correct, by the same author to the same person. But neither none of the uh, three Gospels, I believe, have any names associated with them inside right. the New Testament. or inside. All four of them don't, yeah, okay. e- even even John. John, there's there's more references, yeah. though. Anyway, I'm sure we'll get there. But the scholarly view on the uh, synoptics is you have this thing called, well, once again, it's a four-source theory. <laughs> um, there you go. Um, and uh, I've got a diagram of it right here. Essentially... Um, if we'll it's, get our listeners to look at the diagram. <laughs> yeah. Please please, please uh, direct your attention. Yeah, look at your stereo We've really got, close. We've uh, got our four sources at the top, and they're going to be called the M source, Mar- the Book of Mark, the Q source, probably heard about that yes. one, and L. And so what this essentially says is that Matthew and Luke um, were written after Mark. Um, Correct. 
scholarly view is that Mark is the first um, of the four Gospels, and Matthew and Luke both draw from the book of Mark and from this Q source, which is just the scholarly name for material common to Matthew and Luke. They think it's probably something like the sayings of Jesus recorded or something. And then for Matthew, you've got a separate M source, which is his specific material. And for Luke, you've got the L source, which is his specific material. And so this one uh, doesn't shed a lot of doubt onto the names of the authors, but more uh, how the books came to be. Right. And here's, well, here's one one thing that it may be covered in here, I don't know, but one of the things I've often heard uh, about how this could not be the guys who it says it is, like, for example, Matthew and Mark and, and uh, Luke, well, and John, is because they are, um, they were common Jews, and therefore not scholarly enough, uh, they would have even may have been... Um, illiterate. Uh, mm. So how do these guys write in the classical Greek? And that's that's one of the big biggest uh, things that lead people to thinking, okay, this must be somebody else that's doing this, because if these guys spoke Aramaic, even though Greek was the common language of the day, from a business standpoint, they still would have spoke street language, which was Aramaic. Um, however... Uh, there are some things that I think we should take into consideration. For example, Matthew. Matthew, we know through the through the text, was a tax collector, a publican, okay, which mm-hmm. means he was an employee of the state of Rome, and and as such, there were some requirements that went with that. Um, for one, he had to be literate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Second, he had he would have been carrying with him. Um, a wax tablet and a stylus <laughs> where when he was just walking around yes, because he had to take notes on stuff all the time <laughs> and who had what, you know, that sort of thing. And he also, um, were, would have been trained in uh, Roman shorthand. Uh, so a lot of times what, what tax collectors would do is they'd walk around with their little stylus and the wax and, and make short little shorthand notes on who owes them how much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then they would go back later and either through a scribe or themselves would write it down in a formal way. This makes a lot of sense when you read the book of Matthew because Matthew contains more words of Jesus than any of the other gospels. Yeah, you've got all your uh, discourses in right. there. Right, all these sermons that if you were going to say, okay, what were the specific words that Jesus said? And you're looking at uh, these different gospel accounts, and some of them are differing in their language a little bit here and there. Uh, which one is the most reliable? Knowing Matthew, knowing his profession, knowing that he knew shorthand, <laughs> it makes sense that if Matthew was a witness to these sermons, that he would have written down in shorthand almost uh-huh. I- exactly what Jesus said. So some of this makes a lot of sense for him being the author because it's one of the longest uh, books. It contains more of Jesus's uh, exact words. Um, it would also make sense because some of the things that, that a lot of these scholars don't take into consideration is the purpose behind the gospel. So the gospels weren't meant to be four um, identical writings. Mm-hmm. They were meant to be harmonious, which means you get same tune, but you get different notes that tell uh-huh. the same song. 
So, uh, so Matthew, for example, is really focused on the messianic prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus, you uh-huh. know, of him being the king. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the king of the Jews being the, the Messiah. Well, being a Jew, the authorship of a Jew would lead you to believe, okay, well, he, that's what his purpose is. Um, Mark, on the other hand, uh, if Mark was the actual author of this, Mark was um, often, by tradition, the um, a um, um, servant or whatever of um, of Peter. Yeah. So if we read First uh, Peter five three, he talks about my son John Mark. And, oh, okay. And so uh, he he makes reference to this guy, and uh, so a lot of people, I think it was um, uh, Eusebius that actually accredited. Uh, the book of Mark to Peter through John Mark. Oh, okay. So he's basically saying this was Peter's account given through John Mark that yeah. John Mark would have pinned it. That's what, um, that is one thing um, the scholars uh, would say is that it was mostly Peter's preaching. Mm-hmm. And as Peter told stories about Jesus and stuff, Mark got a big picture of Gotcha. That, so right. That makes sense. And it does make sense that um, we we know historically that it was probably the first one written mm-hmm. uh, sequentially. Um, and it would make sense that the others would reference that material in their formation mm-hmm. of the story. It doesn't necessarily take anything away from the author, what they actually had to say in the others. Yeah. Uh, Luke and Acts are both addressed to Theophilus, you know, same guy. Um one of the things that I saw uh, interesting about that was uh, that perhaps because Luke was a companion of Paul, uh-huh. that perhaps the these these two writings were used as legal documents uh, for his trial in Rome. Hmm. And, I haven't heard that before. Yeah, and so that uh, uh, they were made in his defense. Because remember, he appealed to Caesar. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and he refused to be let go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he would have gotten off easier. Right. So he appealed to Caesar and went through that whole shipwreck at uh, Malta and, and all that stuff so he could get to Rome where he ultimately died. But, um, but if it makes perfect sense that Luke would have used this as defense documents. Yeah. Because um, Luke and Acts are both very much. Roman oriented. Like if you really look at it closely, they're they're they don't say anything against the state of Rome in any way. <laughs> and uh, and so it but it does talk a little bit their anti uh Jewish um thought on, on a lot of things. Okay. And so it makes it makes a lot of sense. Luke would have been uh he would have been literate as well. He was a um he was a physician. And the physicians of that day weren't just doctors in doctor's offices. They were usually um, uh, indentured servants, and they served multi-purposes besides medical. They also did things like uh, family legal papers and oh, okay, and stuff of that nature. So they, so he would have been um, uh, literate as well. Um, John, John, okay. <laughs> John. The non-synoptic yes. gospel. Okay, now this, first off, for for all our guys out there, synoptic uh, simply means uh, it comes from uh, if you break this down, s y n sin, as in um, uh, synthesis or mm. coming together. Same. Yes, same. Like uh, and optic being something you see, 
right? Mm-hmm. So, so it, it looks the same. Same account, yes. something like that. Yeah, it looks like they're in they're in in sync. However, um, John is outside of that. It doesn't tell the story in the same way. It focuses on a different thing completely. John is focused mainly on the deity of Jesus, um, and that's kind of where all his points go. However, this is one that I find very intriguing when it comes to authorship. Why is that? Um, Because John never, it's never technically ascribed to John in the actual writing itself. Uh, The author of this book refers to himself many times in, in in the scriptures as... The, the disciple that Jesus, Jesus loved. loved. And he also refers to himself as the other disciple on occasion. Hmm. So um, the, the, the thing that I would like to, to pose is a little short little study here about uh, what if John didn't author this? What if it was okay. somebody else who authored it? And um, that's not to say anything about the content being any less scriptural than what it is. Uh, it wasn't even really ascribed to John un- until uh, many years later. Um, but uh, first off, if, if we think about John is mentioned in the other passage, in the other uh, Gospels, he's not mentioned by name in this one at all. And that's why people think, well, it must be mm-hmm. John. And But you've got that other phrase in there instead, and they think yes, that's they, what he's going to call himself instead of right, John. Right, this one that, that Jesus, Jesus loved, loved. Uh-huh. Um, which is not really, it's kind of strange when you look at the other accounts, because the other accounts don't really present John in that way. They don't really present John as a special one to Jesus. In any, okay. I mean, they're all special to Jesus in a certain way. Yeah. He was part of the inner circle. Uh, James, John, Peter, mm-hmm, and sometimes three. Andrew. And uh, so you, you have this little group that um, is pulled out. Now think about this. This group, this small inner circle was pulled out a couple of times. Transfiguration on the mountain. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Um, the Gethsemane. Gethsemane, yeah. They were pulled out and they went to Jesus with Jesus to pray. Um, funny that those are two very special moments for John and Peter, and, okay, right? Mm-hmm. Those uh, events are not in the book of John at all. Gethsemane's not in the book of John at all. Well, Gethsemane is, but not... But the transfiguration. But not the prayer, not the... Um, the part where if he was one of the three, he would have seen. So he wasn't part of that, uh, or it wasn't... Uh, it doesn't give us that account of, if this let this cup pass from me. Okay. The, the whole... So um, so we see that, that this isn't here. Um... And the fact that the writer of this book goes out of his way to be completely anonymous. I mean, what? why would John do that based on what we read about him in the other Gospels? We really don't see a need for him to be. A lot of people say, well, it's because he was humble and didn't want to ascribe it. You know, <laughs> That's to what his. I was going to say. But <laughs> if you're going to be humble, why call, it, why call yourself the one Jesus loved? That's at true. That's a, that's a good point. <laughs> And if we actually look at John, as talked about in the other Gospels, was he humble? He's the one who wants to be, a, him and his brother want to be on Jesus' right and his left. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Several times the other disciples get mad at him, right? Mm-hmm, because he thinks he's one of the special ones. <laughs> right. And uh, he was referred to as one of the sons of thunder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Doesn't sound like a real humble guy. 
I mean, he just sounds so. So it, it, it is kind of strange there. Um, let's see. Um, all the passages that mention the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the other disciple, every single one of those happen after chapter 13 of John. Okay. So, so he doesn't mention himself at all prior to that. And the the disciple John would have been around. Yeah, he was one of the first. That. He was one of the first disciples to convert, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so why is it that he waits until chapter thirteen to start referring to himself? And if I'm right, thirteen is Jesus is already in Jerusalem on his final week. It's, Correct. That's pretty far. This along. is this is the Last Supper. That's where he starts talking about himself. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so it's, pre- it's pretty far along. So yeah, so it's really and and he mentions himself many times after that. So the author is, it's almost like the author's a latecomer. It's yeah, only, why would John just start talking about himself right at the very end right, if he had been around? Right, So, okay, another thing okay. to look at is um, uh, he keeps referring to himself sometimes as the other disciple. Um, one way we can interpret this is maybe by the other disciple, he means not of the twelve. Not one of the twelve. At all. And uh, so... Um, if we look at at um, let's let's also look at at, at some things that um, that John um, some of his his personality traits as well. Uh, he let Jesus down three times in Gethsemane, right? Like uh-huh. so, he Jesus came back. He was asleep, uh-huh. and finally he was just like, you know what? <laughs> just rest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, and then it says all the disciples forsook him. But this one, but one, this one who loved that Jesus loved didn't. Now, what happened from I fell asleep at your side to all of a sudden I'm courageous and going all the way into the um, into the the, uh, the 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 high priest court for you, and I'm uh-huh. going all the way to the cross. I mean, the the one that Jesus loved is at the foot of the cross, even. And that makes sense, I guess, when you were talking about it might be a newer convert, somebody's face that they wouldn't have associated as closely with Jesus to persecute him the way they single out Peter. Hey, weren't you weren't you with that Jesus guy? Right. So right. This, this might be a somebody new. So okay, now here's another one. This is really strange because uh, in John 18 verses 15 and 16. Uh-huh. Okay, what we have going on here is um, this is this is at the high priest's house uh, when Jesus is arrested. And uh, let's look at what it says. It says, um, Simon Peter and the other disciple followed them as they brought Jesus to Annas, who is a high priest. Now, the other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, and he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Simon Peter was left standing outside the door. So the other disciple who was acquainted with the high priest came out and spoke to the slave girl who watched the door and brought Peter inside. Okay, so twice here it tells us. So this is the disciple who Jesus loved. He has yes. a connection with the... He knows the high priest. The high priest. However, let's jump over to Acts 4 for just a second. I might see where you're going with this. Yeah, so uh, in in Acts 4, um, and I didn't write down the exact passage, um, but Peter and John are arrested, 
and they are brought before the teachers and the high priests. Mm-hmm. And what it says there is that the, the the high priests and the teachers were impressed with them. Because they're, you know, uneducated. Exactly. And they've been giving these sermons. <laughs> right. And, and they make note that, hmm, they must be followers of Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Obviously, the high priest did not know these people. Mm-hmm. But yes, he's saying you're uneducated, but you're following Jesus. Like that's first impression. Right, right. So it sounds it's strange here because this is the same high priest. So what exactly is going on? And if, if he knew him, he, why didn't he, why isn't he like you know, hey John, what's going on now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so wait, here's the review. Okay, let's let's jump back over to John, and uh, and look at at uh, uh, another passage because if we nowhere else do we see. Um, a reference to a disciple being singled out as one that Jesus loved any differently than any of the others, except here. John 11, um, let's just begin in the first verse. Now, a certain man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha lived. Now, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and wiped his feet dry with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, look, the one you love is sick. Okay, so we have Lazarus being mentioned as uh-huh. someone that Jesus loves. That's the only other phrase. And it's used exactly the same, same Greek words here that it's used later on. And... Um, so if we look at what happens here, okay, we know that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh-huh. Okay, um, all of a sudden, according to John 11, verse 45, Lazarus became a celebrity. People wanted to see him. They wanted to come see this guy who had been brought back from the dead. He was one of the reasons why Jesus was being hunted down to be uh, executed. Uh, a lot happened because of Lazarus's resurrection. Um, the last mention of Lazarus is in chapter 12. Okay. The first mention of this other disciple whom Jesus loved is in chapter 13. 13. Um, where do, now, where do we leave Lazarus at? Uh, it is in chapter 12. Oh, look at this. In 12.2, it says, They gave a dinner for him there. <laughs> Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Exactly. And then at the end, you have, it says the disciple that Jesus loved. Is that like... And it says something like he was leaning on his. It was breast. the one who was leaning, leaning on Jesus's at the last at supper. the last supper table. No way. <laughs> okay, now now let's let's think about this for a second. You just came back from the dead. How scared are you of death? <laughs> not. Yeah. So <laughs> why not go to the? Why not go into to? Okay, this would also explain why the high priest knew him. Because they were inquiring about they that. they all knew about him, about this resurrection. Word had mm-hmm. gotten back to the high priest. And they had even wanted to kill Lazarus at one point. They were like, you know, maybe mm-hmm. we should kill him. And then they decided not to. So he would have been, he was acquainted with, with the high priest because of that. He had the courage to be at the cross. And at the, because of, he had already been through death. Yeah, I mean, like, this was like... Who's okay. going to mess with you now, Lazarus? Okay, in John 20, we have the resurrection of Jesus and... Uh, Peter and the other disciple rush to the to the tomb, but the other disciple beats him. Now, aside from the fact that he's a better athlete, 
(laughs) (laughs) What would give a guy incentive to get back there? I mean, it's like, it's almost like he would, he had a bigger investment in this than Peter. Well, it's like, who's going to be the easiest to, who's going to be the quickest to believe that the tomb is really empty. Right. Right. Because if, if this is Lazarus, he had, he's already been through uh, this type of thing. And now he's thinking Jesus himself is going through the same thing I went through. Uh, I want to jump over to, to John 20 and just look at, at uh, the, the passage for just a second there. Um, because there's something very interesting to note. Um, <clears throat> let's see. The part where they're running to the tomb? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, okay. you have that verse? Um, okay. Let's, it's, verse 3, Yeah, maybe? verse 3. Then Peter and the other disciples set out to go to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down and saw the strips of linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who had been following him, arrived and went right into the tomb. He saw the strips of of linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been around Jesus's head, not lying with the strips of linen clothes, cloths, but rolled up in a piece by itself, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first came in and he saw and believed the very first disciple who believes that Jesus was resurrected is this guy. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense if he had gone through it himself, why this is not a big deal. This is not an impossibility. I've been, uh-huh. I've been there. And what, what was it that made him believe? The, when he saw the, the linen and the face cloth, been folded up. What was the first thing Lazarus saw whenever he came back from the dead? That right there, right in his, his face. face, right. So he would have. That was the first thing Jesus said to him whenever he came out of the tomb: unbind him and set him free. So he had to take mm-hmm. off the napkin, the linen from his face, <laughs> and set it aside. Which that's exactly what he saw whenever he came to the tomb. So, um, I'm not saying that this is fact. <laughs> All I'm saying is very compelling that maybe Lazarus was the actual author of this. <laughs> Mind successfully blown. <laughs> but um, I will say this. This is uh, uh, like a last thing on it. Um, in John 21, um, he mentions the disciples seeing Jesus on the shore of Galilee. Okay, uh-huh. And he starts listing them. And he guess who he lists? The sons of thunder. Uh-huh. He, the sons and of- then, then does he say later... He, he, the disciple that Jesus yes, loves separately. Yes, he doesn't refer to himself as John or one of the sons of thunder. He refers to them as the thir- in third person, like uh-huh. they are the th- sons of thunder. Then he also talks about himself um, because when he when Peter is having a conversation with Jesus at the very end of the book, Peter says uh, Jesus gives him this prophecy that you're going to die in the future. You're going to die for me, and, uh-huh. and Peter's response is. Okay, Lord, if that's where I've got to go, that's where I got to go. What about this guy? And he points at the one that decide, that this disciple, and uh, and he says, "Well, if he survives until I come back again, what's that to you?" And it said, "From that moment, <laughs> it's almost like a joke because it's Lazarus." <laughs> right. So, so if it's Lazarus, it makes perfect sense why they would think he wouldn't die yeah, because he's, he's already, already been resurrected. Yeah. And so they're like, "Okay, has he already gone through what we're going to go through? Is he is it done for him?" 
Uh, is he going to live forever? Uh, there's all these questions that would have naturally came into play. But if this is John, mm-hmm. it that makes less sense as to why the question Yeah, and then up. the only thing you have with John is like, you know, people talking about the fact that he died and wasn't martyred. But with, Correct. with Lazarus, Correct. I see... Yeah, and I have heard that before. So anyway, um, that's all I got. <laughs> that's really cool. And what I like about that idea is that it doesn't take away from, you know, like first-person authorship. No. Because, you know, like so that's, still that's a, a first-person eyewitness. Yes, it's so. still, still a witness, and it still um, ties it straight to uh, the Holy Ghost. Yeah, that, so. that's your case. The, you know, the idea of inerrancy is just as strong there because Lazarus, you know, has every reason to provide a reliable account. Right, right. So right. I like that. That's really cool. Okay, um, so uh, let's move into Paul. Oh, yeah. This, okay, okay, so... <laughs> as Jack says, this is this is where the poop hits the fan. <laughs> <laughs> this is where it gets really messy because you have all these letters, mm-hmm. and uh, I actually brought a really cool uh <clears throat> Well, we have 14, me. supposedly... Uh, it depends on how you count. Um, how you count Hebrews? Yeah, how you count Hebrews. I brought this uh, <laughs> this handy sheet um, I had from last semester with the beginnings of every letter of Paul. Okay. Or the salutations uh, inc- or whatever. Inclu- actually, more. It has a uh, first and second Peter, um, the letters of John and Jude. So I have a lot of salutations okay. here. Okay. And uh, well, first off, we'll state that I haven't seen any dispute about Romans, Galatians. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, or Philemon. Okay, will you repeat those again? I'll see if I can think of any, <laughs> if any Romans, disputes. Romans, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and Philemon. I don't think I have either. Okay. It's all it's all the rest of them. Okay, so, both, so we can om, almost set those aside, I think, because mm-hmm. I don't think there's any scholars saying that Paul didn't write those. You're right. But at the same time, we do want to look to those books because then when we see the characteristics the of those books, right, right. we can say this is in here and it's not even disputed by anyone. Okay. But yeah, you're right. I remember last semester, um, our professor gave us this uh, list of the books and what percent of uh, critical scholars think that Paul wrote them. And so that was really interesting because you have some like... Uh, I think Colossians, he gave it like a 50% rating. So that's pretty disputed evenly on, on either side. Um, but then some of them, like the pastorals, 1st, 2nd, Timothy, and Titus, like 10%. Oh, yeah. So um, naturally, those are going to be um, the most um, questioned. Um, I guess where I wanted to start with this... Um, is the beginnings of the letters because this is where inerrancy and authorship tie together the most closely Correct. and where it becomes uh, a big issue when you start disputing some of these. Right. So Romans, uh, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Um, let's get to some of the disputed ones. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Second Thessalonians, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Um, First Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God. Second Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So these are all claiming right, to right. be writings of Paul. And um, now, only Second Th- Thessalonians gives us any type of, of other authorship. Uh-huh. So Sylvanus and Timothy are included in who it's from. 
Yeah, but then, I mean, I, I think we should probably just go ahead and deal with this right at the beginning. Um, okay. Hebrews starts off with, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. <laughs> it's not even a salutation. So, <laughs> yeah. He jumps right into the meat. I kind of think it's maybe... It's not even th- like a letter. Maybe this is something they got rid of the salutation for as they passed it around. They're like, you know, we don't need... We the, just need the meat of the letter. We need the doctrine. <laughs> we don't need who it's to because we're going to pass it around to everybody. That mm-hmm. could have happened or it could have just been written like that as a... Well, for years and years and years, this was ascribed to Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Um, However, modern um, scholars and, and, and theologians, I mean, it's pretty much accepted now that Paul is not the author yeah. of, of Hebrews. And you see even the most conservatives right. and accepting that because... I'd, after studying it, uh, the book itself, studying the book itself pretty thoroughly, I really don't think Paul wrote it either. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, but that's just my personal... Who do you think wrote Hebrews? Um, I think that it was, um, it could have been Luke or Apollos. Uh, I really do think it was a Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the reason why is is because of the style, the vocabulary is not Pauline, really. Chapter 13 is a little Pauline sounding, mm-hmm. but the rest of the book really is not styled like Paul wrote. Okay. It's not as brash. It's not as, it's more scholastic. Yeah, in its approach, uh, the focus is not on the same things. Uh, most of Paul's writings focus on grace and faith, and and um, and and some of this sort of thing. Uh, Hebrews is more focused on uh, the identification of faith and uh, the superiority of Jesus, and there's also a lot of warning about backsliding and this sort of thing in it. Um, Clement actually claimed that. Um, that it was Paul. Um, how, is that the uh, he's one of Clement the, of Alexandria or Clement of Rome? Oh, good question. Because I can scratch this down as I was going through. Okay. It. Um, so I remember, if I remember right, you have one Clement in like ninety one hundred, but then you right. have another one in like two hundred. So I imagine this it's, is a, it's him. Yes, yes. Um, you you've got um, one one thing that is is that would fit Paul. This is a second generation Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he states that right there in the second chapter, verse three, that he was not uh, an eyewitness, not bodily with yes. Jesus. So um, he quotes the Septuagint very well. I mean, it's, it is like word for word Septuagint. That's one of the things that makes me think that this is a, uh, uh, a, a Greek scholar. Uh, he uses the tabernacle instead of the temple, which is means he may have, um, um, he may have Hebrew roots because mm-hmm. um, he, instead of focusing on the current temple practices, he focuses on tabernacle practices, like okay. Old Testament mm-hmm. uh, type of stuff. And uh, and then, of course, he uses a very classic Greek. He doesn't use uh, street Greek like Paul used. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, I just think that all that kind of adds up to okay. not Pauline. I really, I really <laughs> like Apollos. Because okay. I love the story when he shows up on the scene in Acts. It's something like he only knows the old covenant and the baptism of John. Correct. And he's out there preaching repentance. And it seems to me like he's preaching like a coming Messiah almost. He's preaching. He understands how the prophets are pointing at this thing. And then the Christians find him. They're like, oh, it's happened. Let's let's tell him about it. Right, right. And so I think that's really cool because he's got this understanding of how that was coming. And now it's here. And so I think, you know, the way Hebrews looks at the Old Covenant and how, you know, it's great and then it's like New Covenant's even better. 
and how it supersedes the old covenant. And, you know, I think that Apollos is a really interesting candidate. That would be, I, I, I never really thought about it from that aspect, but with Apollos's knowledge and his, and what, and as you said, the fact that the writer of Hebrews focuses so much on get out of that Jewish practice. Mm-hmm. He was already preaching it. And now he understands how the new He's thing is He's teaching here. what, what, his passion has has been because your passion yeah. is usually where you came from. What right? happened to you? Right, and if you if your your testimony, your change, and you want to help others that are struggling with the same thing, so mm-hmm. that makes that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Okay, so okay. Hebrews, I think we're yeah. agreed that's not Pauline. We kind of okay. put it aside. Okay, so <laughs> so so what about the debated ones? Okay, okay. so like these ones that actually self ascribed to Paul. Mm-hmm. Okay, what. What are the scholars saying? Because uh, I know that Ephesians, Colossians, and Second Thessalonians are are debated. First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Most scholars believe those aren't Pauline. Okay, so let's let's start with the earlier ones. Those uh, the more debated ones, and then we'll move on to the pastorals. I actually found some um, really amusing things in my Oxford um, Bible. If I can uh, read these for you guys in Ephesians. Um, it's it, in the uh, introduction to the book that um, the scholars have written. It says, Significant contrast between Ephesians and the letters certainly ascribed to Paul raise questions about the identity of its author. Many important terms in Ephesians are not used by Paul elsewhere. Some of Paul's characteristic terms and emphases are given new meaning or completely absent. So anyway, this one's so different that they have a hard time saying that's Paul, mainly in vocabulary right. and structure like that. But here's the here's the thing I find odd. I look at the introduction to 2 Thessalonians and the it says the main reason some scholars doubt the letter's authenticity are its close relationship to 1 Thessalonians which it may be imitating. So what, <laughs> what I think is funny about this is like it's too different, it's not Paul. It's like it's too similar, it's, it's not, not Paul. Paul. <laughs> wow. So you know, yeah. Well, um, I got I got to be honest on these. I mean, I understand vocabulary, sentence structure. This isn't normal Pauline speak. I understand why that would raise doubts. However, given that the author ascribes it to Paul and that there is nothing unPauline in the teachings, yeah, um, it really makes me wonder why would the author ascribe it to Paul and then not preach anything radically different. Cause you know, the Gnostics would do that. Yeah. They, they would try to tear down the gospels by writing their own gospels that, that totally contradicted uh, the, the, the gospels that we hold true. So you would think if this was pseudepigraphica or written by somebody else, other than the person it's ascribed to, you would think that there would be some nefarious, uh, structure there like something that was yeah. against the normal teaching this is this is um really i think one of the biggest issues i wanted to talk about um when we brought up you know uh pseudonymity the question is can we here's here's a really hard question can we like say critical scholars are right accept a book that is pseudonymous mm-hmm. and i think you were you were kind of leading me there because one thing I was I was thinking is the church when they were you know writing down what they knew to be the inspired New Testament intentionally rejected these pseudo letters 
because usually, see, my my uh, textbook and a lot of critical scholars tend to think that it's like written by a close disciple of Paul who's trying to extend his teaching after death. <laughs> okay. You know, okay. Keep, keep Paul's thoughts Paul's in circulation. Still alive. But yeah. see, here's the Give hard thing: some is, <laughs> it seems like most people who are going to use that technique aren't using it to try to perpetuate the teaching of somebody they deeply respected. They're trying to get people to listen to their views, which are so far out there, right, and give it some right. kind of which. If you look authority. historically, all the all the pseudepigraphica that we have that we know of that we know is not by the original authors, uh, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas. We know that those those mm-hmm. weren't written by those people. Um, they were written years after that person. Those people were dead. So the the um, we know that the reason for those scriptures are to skew or change the original uh, rewrite uh-huh. history. That's the whole exactly. that's the whole point of them. So um yeah, I just find it hard especially when you look at it these are Christians, right? So let's yeah. assume that Ephesians was written by a fan of Paul who wanted to extend Paul's life <laughs> by by writing this. Um how unchristian is that? Yeah. It doesn't even hold true to the context of Ephesians. Ephesians is all about um, spiritual unity and uh, and 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 grace and how it works and and all of that. And it's so uh, why would you disembody that in the act of it writing it? Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> and I mentioned I mentioned earlier when we were talking before we uh, before we started. Um, about a book that I read. It was a it was a really quality book called Can We Still Believe the Bible by Craig Blomberg, and it's subtitled something like An Evangelical Answer to Contemporary Questions or something like that. Mm-hmm. Really, really valuable for me as I was dealing with a lot of these critical scholarship viewpoints last semester. But at the same thing, same time, I think the one thing that I disagreed with the author of that book on was he said something like, if pseudonymity was part of their literary form, Mm -hmm. then we should accept that as just the way they did things. They didn't consider it deceptive, but here's, I, I don't see eye to eye with him on that. Okay. And here's why I'm going to show you, um, at the end of first Corinthians, I'm going to go to first Corinthians because it's right here. Actually, I'm going to go to Galatians because it's here too. Okay. Galatians chapter six, verse 11. And so you see that you see this in a couple letters of Paul. Galatians six eleven says, "See what large letters I make when I'm writing in my own hand." Correct. So this happens at the end of several Pauline letters, and I pointed it out in Galatians. It's in Galatians. Um, it's in First Corinthians also, because those are not disputed at all. Right. So Paul wrote this. He wrote, "See what letters yeah, I yeah. use with my own hand." And so, guess what book that's also in? Colossians. Second Thessalonians. Right, right. You have two disputed books. And so for me, either these books are authentic or they are so deceptive that they need to be thrown out. Right. Because that's not someone trying to and you know, it, and be it, true to who Paul was. That's someone trying to convince everyone that they are They Paul. are somebody that they're not. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought this up because it's one of the things I, I forgot about. But uh, this was also a common practice of dictating to a scribe. It's like, okay, you're getting something written in somebody else's hand. Mm-hmm. How do I know that, that you wrote it? Well, what, <laughs> that's, this was a way of proving authorship. His handwriting he at would, the very He end. would write it, a, a little 
note at the end of it saying, this is me. I wrote this with my own hand right here. See, I use bigger letters than this guy uses. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, <laughs> and not that we should expect to see this in every single letter because some of the authentic ones mm -hmm. don't have it. Some of the ones that are totally indisputed, Pauline, don't well, have that. It might have been yeah, look at, uh, left at, off. At, at Galatia. Um, he had a relationship with them. They nursed him to health when he was sick. Um, all this sort of thing. It was probably uh, the things he had to say in that was tough to hear, right? Mm -hmm. Just like First Corinthians. Yeah, it, it would make sense that he would want them to know I wrote this. This is this is really from me. Mm -hmm. um, wow. Yeah. So for me, that's that's a block to it saying I can accept this as a pseudonymous letter. Yeah. Um, and and I agree with you. Um, I, I I just. I have a problem with someone who's not being truthful, yet being inspired by the Word of God. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be inspired yeah. to write the Word of God, to write something that we consider uh, Holy Scripture, it it, uh, it just doesn't really play. And maybe maybe it was common for pseudepigraphica, but to be used as a just a common way of doing things. I don't really get that from my studies. And we still, you know, you see the early church constantly consistently rejecting that when they are correct accepting i don't want to say like designating books as canonical because i feel like it's more recognizing what the spirit had already correct like if we and we talked about we've talked about canon on here before but the first um the the what we call the anti-nicene fathers the the mm -hmm. the church fathers prior to the nicene council they um uh, they quote these 27 books uh, on regularity. I mean, they, they as scripture and they treat them like, uh, for example, I had written down here, uh, Polycarp quotes. Yeah. He, he quotes Ephesians, uh, as scripture from Paul. And Polycarp's like 150, 160. 160 yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I had written down, um, back when we were talking about the gospels, I forgot to say this, but I'd written down Irenaeus yeah. in his against heresies right. in about 180 is just railing against all these Gnostic gospels that are popping up. And it's really funny how he makes fun of them right, and right. says how ridiculous they are. But in his, uh, in his writing, he affirms the four synoptic gospels and he by name affirms the traditional authors. Right. And that's not to say that, you know, like John, he couldn't be wrong on the author, but it shows that these four were accepted. They were right, right. quoted. They were. And sometimes the authorship really doesn't matter. I mean, for example, yeah. John. Does it really mm -hmm. matter if John or Lazarus wrote it? Because they're both eyewitnesses. It, right. It's, it's, it's clear that that book is very distinct from you, these Gnostic it, Gospels you see Right. It takes later. nothing away from it. It's not ascribed in writing to either one of them. Uh-huh. So it doesn't really take anything away from it to think that, that maybe there was a different author there. However, whenever a letter says, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Exactly. <laughs> it, yeah. it becomes really hard to, to <clears throat> say, well, no, Paul didn't write that. Uh, you have to have, to me, a lot more evidence than what is usually used by scholars. I you, agree. Usually what the scholars use is it doesn't sound like Paul. Well, that's not good enough. I mean, it has to be, if he's ascribing it to him, you really need some some greater proof. Like, uh, there is nothing to tell us that it is somebody else. I mean, like, we don't have proof that it is somebody else. And so that, to me, that makes it really, really difficult case. It's almost like the burden of proof is against the scholars. Because, I agree. Because of that. Yeah, and you see a lot of people want to start with scholarship and align their 
you know, their reading of the text with that. And Mm -hmm. I think we should go the other way around. And, and, you know, I have to really warn people, uh, if you're listening and and this intrigues you and you want to study textual criticism and all that sort of thing, most of the people writing textual criticism needs you need to 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 deal with that with a with a pinch of salt you know yes absolutely <laughs> because uh you're going to run across authors like uh West Cotton Hort you're going to run across authors like Bart Ehrman Dan Brown these guys uh doubt the authenticity authenticity of scripture so uh that's where they're starting from and uh and they're using their scholarship to empower them in, in the study. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, like I've got books here by Bart Ehrman, but then I've got one by, who's this? Timothy Paul Jones, who wrote a guide to the fallacies of Bart Ehrman's misquoting <laughs> Jesus book. <laughs> a guide to the fallacies. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's some strong stuff that they got wrote in there. But, um, but before we uh, close out, um, it, uh, is that really all we had on, on the Paul? Oh, there writings? was just, there's just one more thing I wanted to mention. I was going to say, uh, you know, like, um, it all, it all depends on where you start from. I know you mentioned that real quick, mm-hmm. but there, there is no such thing as unbiased scholarship when it comes <laughs> to uh, biblical authorship and biblical interpretation. You either start with a view that, you know, on the most basic level, God exists on a more advanced level that he interacts with us and inspires us. And, you know, maybe that he inspired the Bible and on another side, you know, God does not exist. God does not, you know, interact in a supernatural way. And then God did not inspire the scripture. So if you're starting on either one of those sides or, you know, a certain level on either one of those sides, it's really going to determine right where you end I up. I mean, it helps to have an open mind when you're going into the study. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, for example, the John thing, you know, right off the bat, if you say John didn't write it, that can hit some sensitivities People can go, wait a minute, that's that's blasphemous or that's heresy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the thing about it is, is like when we were talking about Lazarus, that doesn't change the authenticity of the writing in any way, shape or form. It just changes our traditional understanding. Of yeah, it. that's actually the last <laughs> thing I wanted to bring up um, is like whatever you do, whatever conclusions you come to, don't let this divide you. Oh, right, I right, know. Exactly. I ha- I have a. There's a guy in my dorm who is as liberal as you can get. In every, I mean, he's not an atheist, but in his interpretation of scripture and his view of God, he's he's as far left as you can get. But you know, for me, I argued with him some earlier, but that that doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. That what does more good for me is to walk beside him. You know, tell him what my views are. You know, if he can take one step and a direction of a correct understanding of scripture, that's more beneficial f- for me than for arguing with him for two hours and him shelling up and right, not, right. Not being open. So I, I agree a hundred percent. Don't let it there, divide you. There are a lot of things we didn't cover that you could on <laughs> so this. many. Um, there's a lot, uh, for example, James, there's a lot of, mm-hmm. of debate about, uh, whether or not that's really the half brother Jesus or not, or, yeah. Or who wrote it. Um, the, uh, the, the letters of John, are debated and, yeah. and they're throwing them around as was strangely enough a lot of scholars believe that not a gnostic wrote those things i'm like really because it's against gnosticism <laughs> if you read it yeah. that's what it's all about but uh and of course revelation uh is attributed to john also and that's mm-hmm. that's you know 
hotly debated, but yeah. none of them as interesting as the ones that, that we kind of I would I would recommend, you know, I, ha- I talked about my Oxford Bible. I would recommend picking up an ESV study Bible because I think this is a an evangelical response to a Bible like the Oxford. Right, right. So I like I like this ESV because it's full of good... Uh, like yeah, I've read in- some of that too. ...information it's on authorship really from a from an evangelical viewpoint, if that's what you consider yourself. Right. So that, yeah, there's lots of text out there that that uh, you can get that talks about this stuff. Um, just make sure that uh, you take the writings of man with a grain of salt. Yep. Because there's always going to be um, people with an agenda and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, I can already warn you against Bart Ehrman's slant. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I did have some feedback. I was going to have you respond to your mom's. Oh no. <laughs> call in. <laughs> questions this will be because fun. Well, we got a lot of question uh we well, actually we've got a good number of voicemails but i think what we're just going to do we're running a little long i'll go ahead and let jeremiah do that so you won't have to face oh, okay. the music when you get home and say oh, i disagree with you mom <laughs> that, that might be for the best i think <laughs> so but anyway um thanks for being us a, a uh, stand-in jeremiah uh, no problem <laughs> It, it, the study probably would have gone a totally different way, you know, if, if it had just been me and Jeremiah. So, uh. The Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network, using new media and social networking to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, to partner with us, visit us at gctnetwork.com. When you get there, subscribe to our newsletter there and stay up to date with all the latest from our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema. There are several ways to contact us and leave feedback. Send us an email to the theonauts at gctnetwork.com. You can call us on our voicemail line, like uh, Riley's mom has been doing, <laughs> at 972-885-7270. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast portal. And don't forget to leave us comments there and rate us. Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts. And follow us on Instagram at Theonauts. Don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us. Thanks for being here, Riley. It was a great pleasure to have you on board. It was awesome, David. Thanks. All right. God bless you. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your Great Commission. This is your Great Commission transmission. At gctnetwork.com. Transmission. This is your Great Commission transmission.